biology. 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 Hello and welcome back to another episode of the HSC Biology Podcast. Today we are going to go through the final dot points of Module 6, which is exciting. And the first two dot points are very similar and pretty much one is going to answer the other. And that is evaluating the changes to Earth's biodiversity due to genetic techniques and evaluate the effect on biodiversity of using biotechnology in agriculture. So we can really kill two birds with one stone and go through each of the different technologies we use and then just look at agricultural examples and understand how they affect biodiversity. So before we begin, I think it's a very good idea to get a definition of biodiversity and then move on to the technology. So biodiversity is defined as the biological variety and variability of life on Earth. Biodiversity is typically a measure of variation at the genetic, species and ecosystem level. So what does this mean? It's the total sum of all variability in not just an organism, but in the entire ecosystem. So all the alleles, how uh, varied they are, all the uh, animals, how varied they are, and the combination of all these factors uh, is really biodiversity. So we're going to go through and explain how different pieces of technology affect biodiversity, and we will start at artificial insemination. So the best way to look at whether or not we're going to have an impact is whether it is a short-term or long-term impact. Because a short-term change doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get a long-term change or a long-term impact. So artificial insemination is done by taking the semen from an individual and inserting it into the female of the same species to get desired traits. Now, realistically, if you're using artificial insemination, you are able to inseminate a wide range of individuals, so you would be able to increase biodiversity. You would be able to spread genes um, in many different ways. So a species of cow, you could use the semen to spread across multiple different breeds in order to produce potentially hybrids or uh, offspring with favorable traits. So you most certainly could increase biodiversity or variability within the genes of those cows. However, if you're on a farm, you might use artificial insemination to inseminate the same cows over and over again, and therefore genetic diversity is going to be decreased. You're using one, uh, one individual bull to father a lot of daughters, and therefore the genetic variability in the short term is going to decrease. Now, if we look at how this impacts diversity or biodiversity in the long term, most likely it's going to decrease genetic diversity and biodiversity. Why? Because the idea is that we're trying to breed favorable traits. And once a farm or an individual has found a trait that is favorable, it will be bred over and over again. So in the long term, the way that we sort of operate now, most of the favorable traits that we have figured out how to breed in organisms are able to um, be used worldwide and therefore we're decreasing genetic diversity and biodiversity. A good example is uh, the Toy Story cow I talked about last week who fathered around 500,000 daughters in over 50 countries. And so they had traits that were favorable and therefore that, uh, that bull, the semen was used globally. And so that would decrease biodiversity 
But in the beginning, when it was first used on different cow varieties, it may potentially have increased it. So you've just got to be aware of the way in which they ask a question. The increase or decrease can be dependent on how they are using, in this case, the semen uh, to increase or decrease it. But most likely, it's going to be decreasing genetic diversity in the long term. An example of that is around 70% of the Holstein cows bred in the United States are artificially inseminated. And so if we're using that same technique over and over again to produce the favorable traits, well then certainly we are using a selected species or breed in order to produce the offspring. So decreasing genetic diversity is the most likely option. And as I've spoken about many times before, a decrease in genetic diversity and biodiversity is going to lead to a potential to be affected by significant environmental changes. So in most cases, when we talk about livestock on farms, we talk about disease. So if a disease affects a single gene or a particular breed because they have a particular genetic makeup, well, that's going to have a negative effect on the overall farm, on the production, on the cows, on the health on many things. So that decrease in genetic uh, diversity and biodiversity is going to negatively impact many things. Um, we can also talk about the wildlife in the area. So by using farming and those processes, selecting one cow breed over another, we may be eliminating a particular cow breed which does not have favorable traits, therefore further decreasing that biodiversity. So we're not only impacting the genes and making them less varied, we may be decreasing the overall allele frequency of all alleles in a population, not just for a single species, but across multiple species. And again, negative consequences are usually um, going to come about because of this. When we move on to uh, artificial pollination, very similar um, understanding. We can certainly increase genetic biodiversity and diversity because we can use pollen from one individual plant and we can pollinate many different plants uh, of the same species or genus, I should say. Now, when we do that, we can produce offspring that may be hybrids. And a hybrid plant would be one that maybe hasn't been created before. And a hybrid plant would have traits that haven't been seen before, seen before, and therefore their genetic makeup would be new. And so they are increasing genetic diversity and biodiversity. And a great example of this is the production of ghost peppers. So if you're not aware of a ghost pepper, they're very spicy uh, chili. They were made by crossing two uh, individual uh, capsicum species, the capsicum uh, chinensi, I think it is, and capsicum frutescens. I definitely mispronounced them, but you get the idea. Uh, these were artificially pollinated plants in order to produce a pepper that was extra spicy. It was super spicy. And that new pepper, the ghost pepper, wasn't here before. And so you've increased genetic diversity and biodiversity. You've got a whole new hybrid species, which is now grown globally. It's a very popular thing. And so you can apply, again, logic to these situations. Now, once again, you can decrease genetic diversity. If you're on a farm and you're making pea plants and you're just crossing the same pea plants over and over again, you're going to get a decrease in genetic diversity because, well, you're not, you're not really mixing any new uh, alleles into the population. You would need to use a separate plant or crossbreed. Um, and so globally, we usually find, again, when there's a favorable trait being used, that it is bred on a large scale. And that large-scale breeding program, uh, artificial pollination program, is going to have a significant decrease on biodiversity because farms obviously farm a lot of this and therefore you're going to have less, um, less diversity and less biodiversity. 
So overall, again, short term, you can get up or down, increase or decrease in genetic diversity depending on how you're uh, understanding uh, the process. In the long term, once again, though, it's probably going to lead to a decrease in genetic diversity and biodiversity overall because the favorable traits will once again be selected and bred in large numbers. This will once again cause farms to be um, sending you know, uh, pollen across the world to potentially be used to grow more of the crops. We may be... Um, uh, using uh, or not using old crops or old plants in order to uh, to increase our yield. And so decreasing that biodiversity from other plants is going to create an overall decrease in genetic biodiversity. So realistically, in the long term, using farming techniques, it's probably going to decrease genetic diversity, once again leading to potential issues when we have environmental changes like disease. Very similar answers there and similar examples, but uh, hopefully you understand the idea. Now moving on to cloning, cloning most certainly decreases genetic diversity in the short term and decreases genetic diversity in the long term. Why? Well, we are creating an identical copy of a previous individual. It is, it is exactly the same. DNA-wise, it is exactly the same. It may look different and this is because we hopefully you guys have learnt that uh, expression can be regulated by different environmental factors so proteins could be switched on or off or expressed in different amounts or temperature or pH or all these other factors can lead to a change in phenotype but the DNA itself will be identical and therefore the biodiversity, those genes, those alleles, we're not getting any new alleles, we're going to have a decrease overall. So if we overuse cloning, uh, the idea is that we will decrease it and certainly in the long term if you're continuing to clone the same individual, you will decrease it. Now doing a bit of research on this, the main use for cloning currently is to create breeding offspring, oh, sorry I should say breeding individuals. So when they create a clone it's not really used for meat production or food production or milk or anything like that. They usually pick individuals that have um, high potential to produce good offspring and potentially things like temperament, behavior, um, and you know production rate, so how many offspring they're producing. So what they uh, will do is they'll find a cow that does all of these things, and they might clone it and then use it to breed many offspring, and then those offspring will be used um, for meat, for milk, and for other uh, processes. So a good example of this is um, a, a cow called a Brangus, and this is something I only learned recently, and it is done in Australia here, and uh, it's a cross between an Angus and a Brahmin cow. Now, there was a female that was cloned because she had a really good temperament and a high birth rate. So she was producing lots of offspring, but her temperament was really good. So she was actually selected because of her behavior and attitude, which is really interesting when you think about it. We talk about genes being selected for favorable features. This was a, a recognizable behavioral trait, which is very interesting. So one other bit of interesting information about clones when you use a nucleus from an older sheep, so Dolly, for instance, is a good example. Dolly was uh, produced from the nucleus of a six-year-old sheep. And when they observed her chromosomes, they noticed that the ends of her chromosomes were shorter than they should have been uh, when she was born. And so she had less of those chromosome ends. Now, they're really associated with aging. And when I talked to Marcel Dinger, the idea is that the ends of your chromosomes have a large lengths of um, 
non-coding DNA that really doesn't have much use for, for anything, but it protects us from um, replication errors and issues like that. So when the nucleus was inserted uh, from the original six-year-old donor, it obviously had some uh, degradation in those chromosomes, and that was then inserted into Dolly, well, into what would become Dolly. And now because of that happening, Dolly the sheep was uh, slightly older than really she should have been in terms of her chromosomes. And that led to her dying a little bit earlier, potentially, uh, which is, you know, unfortunate as a part of the process. Now, this Brahmin cow didn't have any of those recognizable traits that led to uh, her being older. So she seemed completely identical to the original, which, the again, the owners were really happy about. One further bit of information that I found interesting the mitochondrial DNA is still actually taken from the egg. So when we talk about an identical copy, that mitochondrial DNA is still coming from the donor egg. So they're still getting some conditions from or some of that DNA from the mother. And when we talk about cloning, we don't really mention this, but I can see this being a really good crossover point in the syllabus. They could ask you about how a disease in the mitochondria could affect a cloned organism. And the idea is that that mitochondria could be in the egg cell from the clone and it could significantly impact the phenotype. So it might come out completely different with a disease, with, with other issues. So that mitochondria can certainly have an impact on the cloned species that we're making. So just a bit of extra information there. Now, as I said before, the biodiversity in cloning decreases in the short term and decreases in the long term. With transgenics, the next one, we can talk about short-term when you are inserting a gene from a new species, or so, sorry, from a different species into a new species, you're creating a brand new organism, realistically, and that is certainly increasing in the short-term. So when you create Bt cotton, for instance, you now have a bacterial gene in that Bt in that plant, in that cotton plant, and that cotton plant now is a brand new type of species. So you've certainly increased biodiversity. You've got a whole new variety of DNA different to any other. However, that doesn't mean that it's going to be a good thing. Bt cotton is produced en masse globally. It is produced in large amounts and that certainly could have a decrease or an, an impact on biodiversity and it's most likely to decrease biodiversity. Why? Again, selection, favorable traits. That Bt cotton is now bred globally and around 95% of all cotton grown in the United States and 95% of cotton grown in India is genetically modified. And of that genetic modification, around 93%, at least in India, is Bt cotton. So that certainly is going to have a decrease in biodiversity. If we're producing just one type, one variety of that Bt cotton, we have, we're going to have a significant impact on, that, on the biodiversity particularly of other plants, if they're not useful or not producing those traits that we want, we're decreasing biodiversity. However, by introducing new genes into a population, overall, the alleles could potentially spread and become just a mix of all the other alleles. They could be favorable, but they could be um, not favorable enough to knock out other certain alleles. So you need to be careful. The example they give you, you've got to take into account all variables. Is it significantly impacting on the biodiversity and how? 
Is it completely eradicating other genes, therefore decreasing it, or is it working together with them to increase the overall biodiversity? And again, PT cotton is a great example of an agricultural biotechnology that is used and has a significant impact on social, ethical, economic, uh, just many different things, and it's a transgenic. The last one we'll look at is CRISPR, and because it's new technology and really has the ability to do anything in the short term and the long term, it could both increase and decrease biodiversity. This is, you know, this is the everything key. This allows you to add, delete, remove, uh, transfer, whatever it might be. It can do it all in the short term. Now, what effect that has in the long term? Well, a lot of it we don't know, and that's why it's scary. When I spoke about gene drives a few episodes ago on the Long Read Sunday, the idea was to create something that didn't pass through generations. So in uh, in certain individuals, we didn't want the CRISPR technology to be passed from generation to generation. And in last week's episode, I talked about germline editing. If we do manage to cause germline editing, then we have a huge unknown factor about whether that's going to increase or decrease biodiversity. Uh, a great example is the production of knockout mice. So we use knockout mice in order to produce mice that have combinations of genes that we want or don't want. We can then do testing on them in order to produce uh, potential outcomes that we would be beneficial for individuals. So CRISPR, really ambiguous, and I would say you're going to get a skill question probably around this or something similar where you have to just apply your logic. So just remember that if you are getting a trait that is favorable and being selected for over and over again over other plant species, over other animals, it's going to decrease biodiversity. If you are introducing alleles, new alleles into a population that are mixing and just becoming a part of the population, you're going to increase genetic diversity. If you're cloning, you're going to decrease genetic diversity. If you're artificially pollinating or inseminating, it could do either. It could go either way. But in the long term, favorable traits will most likely lead to a decrease in genetic biodiversity, in genetic diversity and biodiversity, I should say. All right, we're now up to the final dot point, and that is interpret a range of secondary sources to assess the influence of social, economic, and cultural contexts on a range of biotechnologies. So let's just break that down a little bit. Interpret a range of secondary sources. So do research on lots of papers and make an assessment of the social, economic, cultural context and on a range of biotechnologies. So we've talked about a range of biotechnologies. I don't think we need to go into too many here. We can pick one of the ones we've already looked at. In terms of the social, economic, and cultural context, there's certainly talking points all throughout here. Cultural context, probably the most difficult because we haven't really discussed that yet. So I'm going to pick one today, but it's a good idea to have a couple examples here to go through. The example I'm going to pick is golden rice or golden rice 2 now. And that is a great example because there are many social, economic, and cultural implications in using this technology. So let's go through those now. With the social impact of using biotechnologies, the idea is that all social impacts are going to improve human life. We want to improve productivity. We want to minimize suffering, minimize damage to individuals, minimize pain, things like that. We want to improve society. So how do we do that? using golden rice. Now, golden rice is a good example because it is aimed to improve health, which has many, many benefits. It's going to increase your ability to absorb vitamin A. It's causing a decrease in blindness worldwide. It's used in third world countries because it is a staple ingredient, rice as a staple ingredient. So it's not something that might be too difficult for them to, to use as just a substitute. 
And that is going to lead to increase in productivity, people working longer, less impact on the health system, and an overall improvement to the economy in the country. So lots of social implications on using a piece of technology like golden rice that increases that beta-carotene in the body and minimizes vitamin A deficiency, thus improving health and the quality of life. In terms of economic impacts, well, if an individual has the ability to work, um, they don't get the condition of blindness or being partially blind, they're going to add to the economy. Therefore, they're going to be able to make more money, more money for their family, more money for themselves, and for the uh, entire global or the, their country's production of certain items. So they will have the ability to make more money, which is good. However, with the economic impact of golden rice, there's few, a few things we need to talk about. Golden rice itself can be grown just like normal rice, but it's expensive in its startup costs. And so when an individual wants to choose to use golden rice, they might have fields and fields of white rice that they've been using for many generations. Now, to start up using a whole new brand or a whole new breed might have slight changes to their methodology. And those startup changes in third world countries could be significant in decreasing their ability to make money. So there's a real balance here. Are they going to accept the golden rice because it has this vitamin A or are they going to continue what they're doing because it's too much of a risk economically to take that on? And when they start growing the rice, there is a, a few studies that show that the rice can be made cheaper than white rice, but there is no government subsidy to start this. This is on the individual, on the farmers to choose to do this. And right now, they're not choosing to do this uh, in most countries anyway. And that's for a number of reasons, and we'll talk about the cultural reasons next. But again, if you can manage to use the golden rice and more people buy it and it improves health, therefore you could make more money, people might want to use it more, and then they want to pay you more. And again, improving health makes more money for the government and uh, the economy. In terms of cultural implications... Farmers can choose whether or not they want to use this. And right now, there's you know a negative perception in a lot of third world countries. I'm not going to use a product that has been genetically modified because it is scary and it is something that is new. However, if they were shown the research and they were able to understand what it does and how it works, they might feel more comfortable using it. But to do that on a large scale across a large population is going to be very difficult. And so we really need a shift in cultural appreciation and understanding before people are going to use things like GM crops. Now, companies like Greenpeace still significantly advocate for the not for, not for using um, genetically modified foods. And more recently, uh, a, a, a large number of Nobel laureates uh, sent an open letter to Greenpeace in order for them to try and can, to try and convince them to stop pushing back against GM foods. There's no evidence to suggest that it really is going to, or is having a negative impact. Now, there's always the what-ifs. Is it going to cause mutation? Is it going to cause changes that we can't foresee? As far as we know, the research says no, it doesn't do that. But that is always going to be something that we need to manage uh, in the scientific community. And so for a cultural uh, or for a country to choose to do this when there's all this um, tension already, 
they're going to choose the option that's already making them enough money to live and they might just be wanting to, to live day to day, not be trying to fix the world and, and global problems. So from a cultural perspective, their own lifestyle, their, you know, their own situation is going to have a significant impact on their ability to choose a particular new breed of GM rice. Now, will it fix their entire country or the, the significant issues they're having? Well, we don't know. It's, it's hard to implement that. But that large startup cost, negative perception, unknown factors about yields and percentage and mutation and, and other issues are currently too large in order for some individuals to overcome. Finally, we have the concept of playing God, which is certainly a big one here. When we talk about any genetic modification, it is a very common argument in countries where religion is, uh, makes up a large part of their culture and their day-to-day life. If we are shown to be manipulating something they believe is sacred, then, of course, they're not going to use it. They're not going to chance, um, uh, you know, lose a potential enormous amount of customers and their own integrity and their own beliefs um, just because it's able to do a certain thing. So certainly playing God is, is a big argument and one that you most certainly can use. All right, guys, and that brings us to the end of Module 6. I hope you've enjoyed it, and if there's anything I've missed or something you might want me to go over, um, please just uh, send me a message on Facebook. I'm happy to respond and uh, do some fill-in podcasts if I need to. If you can, jump online and give the podcast a review. It all helps um, to get the podcast up the rankings. And apart from that, I really appreciate you guys listening, and, uh, yeah, stay tuned for Module 7. Also, be sure to check out STEM Reactor at stemreactor.com.au. They really are awesome sponsors for the show and they've uh, got some awesome products that they can provide to your school, especially for your extension science students. They really have everything you need. So check out stemreactor.com.au.